One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Dolphins at Bills. Kickoff Sunday, October 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 53 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Jalen Waddle cleared the concussion protocol and was removed from the team's injury report. River Craycraft and Eric Azukanma did not practice Wednesday or Thursday, likely leaving the bulk of the wide receiver three role to Braxton Berrios. These two defenses have combined to allow just five total touchdowns through the air through three weeks of play, well below the league average. The Bills run the bulk of their defensive snaps from nickel, split between cover two and cover three alignments, while the Dolphins' new defensive coordinator, Vic Fangio, effectively set the league on its current trajectory of two high base alignments. Both of these schemes force opponents to march the field through efficiency while aiming to take away splash plays. How Miami will try to win. By going for the jugular, that's how. The Dolphins rank 12th in seconds per play, 27.7, and, discounting their extreme run-heavy ways in their Week 3 dismantling of the Broncos, operate via a highly concentrated pass-balanced offense. Tyreek Hill leads the league in targets per route run at a ridiculous 40.7% and ranks 2nd in team target market share. He also leads the league in red zone targets, deep targets, air yards, and air yard share. The new piece of the puzzle this year is defensive coordinator Vic Fangio, who is largely responsible for the near-league-wide shift to a too-high base defense. His 3-4-4-3 under-hybrid front asks a lot of the linebackers because they are typically employed closer to the line of scrimmage than in other defensive schemes around the league. It requires them to be athletic, instinctive, and capable in coverage through the passing game. When you look at this defense on paper, the injury to Jalen Phillips and the inconsistent play of Jerome Baker have been the weakest links in this defensive chain. The Dolphins also have, almost inexplicably for a too-high base, allowed their opposition to average a 9.1 ADOT against them, which ranks 7th deepest in the league. Yeah, sorry for taking so much time on this defense, but the offense more or less remains static from last year until now, meaning more insight can likely be gained by looking at how the changes on defense influence their game plan. As for the offense, we know head coach Mike McDaniel hails from the Gary Kubiak and Kyle Shanahan coaching tree. He has taken those layered route concepts and outside zone run scheme principles and tweaked things ever so slightly to create an offense the league quite simply has not seen before. One of those offensive tweaks is the inclusion of inside zone run concepts in conjunction with the standard Shanahan outside zone concepts. We've seen that misdirection spring three touchdowns already this season. One by Raheem Mostert in Week 2, one by Mostert in Week 3, and one by Devon Achan in Week 3. Now teams have to have the idea in the back of their minds that this team could throw zone gap run blocking principles over the guard and between the tackles in addition to off-tackle work, which is hashtag not fair. Oh, I guess this is a good time to mention that this team has accounted for all six of the top speeds in the NFL this year, two by Tyree Kill, two by Mostert, and two by Achan. Oh, and Jalen Waddell is no slouch in the speed department. That puts egregious amounts of strain on an opposing defense, and when you think you have the edge, they just run off guard with a pulling opposite guard. It's silly the things this man has drawn up. By DVOA, the Bills are no slouches against the run, but they are currently allowing a robust 5.9 yards per carry to opposing backs this season and are no longer stout in the linebacking core as they have been in past seasons. The passing game is Tyree Kill, a fairly large gap, Jalen Waddell, an even bigger gap, the running backs, a massive gap, and everyone else. 
The everyone else is likely to include tight end Durham Smythe and wide receiver Baxton Berrios this week, with River Craycraft and Eric Azukanma appearing unlikely to play. Both mispracticed Wednesday and Thursday. As was covered above, Tyreek Hill leads the league in numerous pass-catching categories through three weeks and is currently on pace to best Calvin Johnson's single-season receiving record of 1,964 yards. To be fair, Hill is one of three players currently on pace to eclipse Megatron this year, joined by Justin Jefferson and Keenan Allen. But yeah, historic-level alpha stuff going on in Miami. The Bills have held opponents to just 4.9 net yards per pass attempt this season, sixth best in the league, introducing a strength-on-strength matchup for us in Week 4. How Buffalo will try to win The Bills appear to be adding a slight wrinkle to their offensive game plan this season, and I'm not exactly sure whether or not to expect that trend to continue moving forward. After ranking 7th in seconds per play in 2022 at 27.5, the Bills currently rank 30th in 2023 at 31.3, in the San Francisco and Philadelphia range of pace. That said, they maintain their hefty pass rate over expectation value from a season ago, currently ranking 4th behind the Chiefs, Vikings, and Chargers, and would likely be ranked higher if not for their 37-3 dismantling of the Commanders in Week 3. Josh Allen's 7.3 intended air yards per pass attempt ranks 20th in the league and is accentuated by a lowly 3.3 completed air yards per pass attempt, highlighting an offense that has not attacked downfield at the same rate as in previous seasons. A disruptive defense has allowed the Bills to average 69 offensive plays run from scrimmage per game, which is about four more per game than they averaged in 2022. Lead back James Cook has been in on snap rates of 59, 59, and 62% during the first three weeks, but has ceded red zone work, specifically inside the five, to Latavius Murray and Damian Harris, the latter two of which are on the board with touchdowns while Cook has yet to find the paint. Even so, Cook has quietly put up the third most rushing yards this season and has seen the eighth most targets at the running back position, meaning he is likely to provide a solid GPP score in a game he finds pay dirt. His true yards per carry and yards per touch rank sixth in the league, and he finds himself in one of the most forgiving matchups on the ground he has seen to this point in the season against the Dolphins. Murray and Harris do enough to keep Cook from elite status as a workhorse, but not enough to warrant any fantasy consideration. Miami's 4.6 yards allowed per carry ranks seventh worst through three weeks. Whereas the Bills have been stout against the pass, the Dolphins have been more forgiving, allowing 5.7 net yards per pass attempt and 694 yards through the air, to just 427 for the Bills. Even so, the too-high base shell with shallow linebackers presents the intermediate areas of the middle of the field to opponents as the likeliest path for production to flow with a swarming mentality post-reception. Stop me if you've heard this before, but Stefan Diggs aligns well with this expectation, as do the tight ends and running backs. We can provide a slight bump to the volume expectations of Diggs, James Cook, Dalton Kincaid, and Dawson Knox, and a slight knock to the volume expectations of Gabe Davis. Fullback Reggie Gilliam is now an afterthought in the offense, with the introduction of league-leading rates of 12 personnel via Knox and Kincaid, effectively minimizing the roles of the secondary wide receivers, Trent Sherfield, Deontay Hardy, and Khalil Shakir in the process. Likeliest Game Flow This game very clearly has all the pieces for a true eruption spot but it also carries two defensive minds that aim to eliminate splash plays through heavy zone utilization and deep safeties. The Dolphins accomplish that task through heavy rates of two high alignments and an athletic linebacking unit, while the Bills accomplish that task via extreme rates of nickel personnel groupings and a mix of cover two and cover three principles. Look, we're not going to avoid a spot like this because the defensive coordinators like playing prevent-style alignments. That said, it does slightly reduce the chances for the game environment to erupt by forcing each other to march the field through efficiency 
where the individual pass rushes and swarming and ball hawking second level can force mistakes and generate turnovers. Volume sets up well for both backfields and for the alpha wide receivers from each team. Shocking, I know. Vikings at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, October 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 46 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Both of these defenses have struggled in all phases this season and have some injury situations they are dealing with. Minnesota's passing offense is loaded with talent and will be a problem for Carolina's beat-up secondary. The Panthers' offense appears to be a matchup-sensitive group that will look to take advantage of this juicy setup. Frank Reich and Kevin O'Connell have these teams playing with pace as they both rank in the top 10 in the league in tempo through three weeks. This game has the makings of a sneaky shootout due to struggling running games and beatable defenses. How Minnesota will try to win. The Vikings are a team that is clearly reeling and quickly has their season slipping away from them. After a 13-4 regular season record in 2022, the Vikings are one bad game away from matching their loss total already. The Vikings' 0-3 record is not the same as some other teams, as they have lost those games by 3, 6, and 4 points respectively. After great luck in close games last year, the Vikings have been unable to make enough winning plays in 2023. This has some people suggesting they trade Kirk Cousins and tank the season to get a shot at one of the heralded class of 2024 QB prospects. The ironic part of this is that Cousins has been terrific, as he currently ranks first in the NFL in passing yards, seventh in completion percentage, first in passing TDs, fifth in yards per attempt, and third in QB rating. There are a lot of issues in Minnesota, but the quarterback hasn't been high on that list. The Vikings' defense has struggled in all facets and their running game has been able to get nothing going, ranking 31st in the league in rushing yards despite two of their three games coming against the Chargers and Buccaneers, which ranked 29th and 30th in the league in PFF run defense grade. Let us be clear. The Vikings are the best passing offense Carolina has seen this season. While the Seahawks have a good on-paper skill group, their offensive line is beat up and they have had to adjust what they do a bit early in the season. Still. Seattle managed 37 points against this Carolina team, and given the hot start for the Vikings offense, along with their talented personnel, we can expect Minnesota to maintain their brisk pace of play and aggressively attack Carolina's banged-up secondary from the outset of this game. Their running game should once again have some success, as they did against the Chargers, after running into brick walls from the Bucks and Eagles to start the year, but the passing game will be the focal point. The expected relative success for the running game is critical, mainly in the fact that it will help Minnesota sustain drives and therefore increase its likelihood of scoring points. How Carolina will try to win The Panthers' offense finally showed some signs of life in Week 3 with Andy Dalton under center in Seattle. While some may use the small samples we have from 2023 so far as an indictment on 2023 first overall pick Bryce Young, we must keep in mind who the opponents were in each game. In the first two weeks of the season, Young faced the Falcons and Saints, both teams which appear to have very good defenses this year, while Dalton got to face a Seahawks defense who has given up the highest scoring game of the year to every opponent they've faced so far. Whoever is under center this week will have the pleasure of facing a Vikings defense that has also been beat up on a weekly basis in 2023. Minnesota has given up the 6th most yards and 7th most points in the NFL through three weeks. Carolina's pass rate over expectation this season is slightly below average, while their tempo is slightly above average. Frank Reich is a sharp offensive mind, however, and will likely see the Vikings' defense being exploitable while also knowing his own defense is unlikely to hold the Vikings' offense to a low point total. 
which should result in a relatively aggressive approach from the Panthers in this matchup. Last week, Vikings defensive coordinator Brian Flores dialed up a blitz on 40% of Justin Herbert's 50 dropbacks, and the Vikings led the league at a 63% blitz rate through three weeks. This is in line with the aggressive mindset we have seen from Flores throughout his career, and we should expect it to continue. This aggressiveness results in one-on-one matchups in the secondary, with Adam Thielen working as the short-to-intermediate centerpiece of the passing game. DJ Chark missed Week 1 and played limited snaps in Week 2, but he played 94% of the snaps in Week 3 and was targeted 11 times. Chark is a deep threat whose presence has always been positive for every team he has been on throughout his career. Said another way, when Chark misses time or is limited, it severely hinders the efficiency of his offense because of the way he opens up the playbook and field for everyone else. He should have downfield opportunities this week against a struggling defense that will leave him isolated and the Panthers will likely dial up some shots to him early in the game. The Panthers will not abandon their running game, but the Vikings' aggressive blitzing pass defense is a vulnerability that Reich will look to exploit throughout the game because he knows the Vikings' offense is likely too good to be held under 20 points. Likeliest Game Flow When evaluating games for their likelihood of shooting out, there are a few things that we should be looking at objectively. One is, of course, efficiency. Do the teams move the ball well and score well? For this game, we know the Vikings can move the ball efficiently, especially through the air, and we know the Panthers are also a capable unit when they are playing a weaker defensive opponent, which Minnesota qualifies as. The second thing we should consider is tempo. Do the teams play fast? If so, do they always play fast or only in certain situations? Both of these teams rank in the top 10 in the NFL in pace of play, and both of these head coaches are known for pressing the gas a bit. The other two main things I look for are matchup and potential for explosive plays. In researching this game, there are two things that stood out to me in regard to those areas, one on each side of the ball. First, the Vikings defense is ranked 32nd in the NFL in PFF pass rush grade. Carolina's pass blocking has also struggled this season, ranking 29th in PFF grade, but this lighter matchup should mean more time for the Panthers' QB, Dalton or Young, to find openings against a struggling secondary. Second, the Panthers rank 31st in the NFL in tackling grade by PFF. Watching the game, you can see why, as they constantly fail to wrap up ball carriers on their first attempts and are getting thinner in the secondary with each passing day. Adding it all up, there is a lot of potential for an explosive game here. We saw Carolina play Seattle to the tune of 64 combined points in Week 3, and something similar wouldn't be shocking here. Minnesota's talented passing game is going to complete passes, and the Panthers have a depleted secondary that is struggling with tackling. This is a recipe for some huge plays from the Vikings. Assuming Minnesota builds a lead, it's not going to be able to sit on it because the Vikings won't be able to trust their defense, and Carolina should be able to put up a fight. Minnesota's blitz-happy defensive scheme will also leave them susceptible to some big plays and further drives the likelihood of a higher-scoring game. The factors at play here give this game a scoring floor not too far below this game's over-under of 45, while the ceiling extends far beyond that. Broncos at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, October 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 46.5. Game Overview by Hilo. We've talked about teams still trying to find their identity in other write-ups this week, and that sentiment could not be more true than when talking about these two teams. Something has got to give in this spot. Sharp money would appear to be on the Broncos, who somewhat quietly have a top 10 offensive line and have blocked to 2.0 yards before contact on the ground, good for fourth in the league. Nothing from this game truly pops on paper, regardless of the current state of each defense. 
how Denver will try to win. The Broncos have looked competent. Competent, not spectacular, against lesser competition, the Raiders and Commanders, and were historically embarrassed by the lone top-end team they played this season, the Miami Dolphins. Sean Payton is very clearly still working through how he wants this offense to look and run, with his most explosive playmaker, Marvin Mims, topping out at 17 offensive snaps this year. Practice squad players Brandon Johnson and Lil' Jordan Humphrey thrust into legitimate roles due to injury, Jerry Judy missing week one and working his way back into game shape the following two weeks, Greg Dulcich's trip to injured reserve, and a backfield that very clearly needs to feature Javante Williams, who might be limited by his health after working back from a torn ACL suffered last season. From a top-level perspective, this team has played with a modest pace, 19th ranked 28.5 seconds per play, and moderate pass rate, 10th ranked pass rate over expectation through three weeks, but we have to question when those tendencies are going to change considering the team's performance to this point in the season and the coaching staff in charge. Peyton has long been hailed for his ability to extract the maximum amount of talent from the players on his roster. The problem with just assuming those tendencies will immediately present themselves on the football field is that sweeping schematic changes take time to institute, and the shortened offseason does these teams with significant changes no favors. I have confidence that things will eventually turn around for the Broncos, but we have to realize we have no idea when, or if, that happens this season. Javante Williams is far and away the most talented back on the Denver roster, but he has played between 42 and 45% of the offensive snaps in each game through three weeks. Again, we have no idea if or when that changes moving forward, but we have to assume that Peyton and Joe Lombardi have been forced back to the drawing board after last week. There's also the uncertainty regarding Williams' health after suffering a torn ACL in week four of last year. What we do know is that the team wants Williams in their primary early down role. A low route participation rate, 32.7%, good for 42nd in the league amongst running backs, means Williams should primarily be viewed as a yardage and touchdown back, one that has seen only 36 carries through three weeks due to the low overall snap rate. Can that change in an instant? Of course it can. Are we going to know when that is likely is to happen? No. Samaj P. Ryan's offseason hype was quickly extinguished this season, accounting for just 12 carries and 11 targets through three games. He is the unquestioned change of pace and clear passing down back, but that hasn't translated to much on the opportunity or box score front just yet. As far as red zone usage, Williams has seen four red zone opportunities, Pirine has seen five, and rookie Jaleel McLaughlin has seen three of his own, one of which he converted to a five-yard touchdown plunge. The matchup on paper could not be better against a Chicago defense allowing 34.7 DK points per game and seven total touchdowns to opposing backfields this year. One final note here, the Broncos' offensive line is actually above average this season, allowing pressure at a below-average rate and blocking to 2.0 yards before contact, latter of which ranks fourth in the league. In this offense's current state, only Cortland Sutton is playing close to every snap. Judy has not seen the snaps just yet, but his 94.3% route participation rate is acceptable, and he has transitioned back to a heavy slot snap rate. I will continue dying on the Marvin Mims as the skeleton key to unlock this offense hill. His downfield ability would allow Sutton more space and one-on-one coverage on the perimeter in the X-type role, and allow Judy to run routes more optimized to his skill set out of the slot. And yet, two practice squad wide receivers, Brandon Johnson and Lil Jordan Humphrey, continue to play over the electric rookie. Again, when or if Mims sees more involvement in the offense remains to be seen keeping a high level of uncertainty attached to this offense until further notice. 
Per Scott Barrett on Twitter, eight of the Broncos' 10 longest plays this season have come via Mims, who has touched the football just 12 total times, seven catches and five kick returns. Adam Troutman has been forced into a role he is not best suited for following the injury to Greg Dulcich and would be optimally used as a blocker moving forward. How Chicago will try to win. I'm honestly not sure the Bears know how they will try to win games at this point. They have appeared dead set on transforming Justin Fields into a pocket passer that can also run, which is in stark contrast to how they designed the offense during the second half of the 2022 season, where they built things around who their quarterback is, instead of forcing him to be something he is not. Again, this is something that can change with a flick of the wrist, so we can't simply assume the first three weeks of the 2023 season are the precursor for what to expect for the remainder of the year. But yeah, to this point, the returns have not been promising. And to think, I actually lauded offensive coordinator Luke Getze for his handling of the Bears' offense during the second half of the 2022 season. If this team can get back to attempting to maximize Fields and his unique skill set, we could see another turnaround in production. Until that time, more pain is likely in order. Chicago has somewhat surprisingly played with pace this year. They rank 9th at 27.4 seconds per play, but maintain a relatively modest PROE, the 7th lowest in the league. The backfield began the season in a messy three-headed timeshare, but has since devolved into a two-back system split between Khalil Herbert in the primary early down roll and electric rookie Roshan Johnson in the change of pace and clear passing down roll. Those close to the situation expect Johnson to take over as the lead back at some point this season, which continues the uncertainty forward to some degree here. Similarly to the other side of this game, the matchup on the ground could not get any better. These two teams are far and away the two worst run defenses in the league up to this point in the season. One of these levies is likely to burst in this spot. It appears that Getze is at least attempting to change the offense after asking Fields to drop back 41 times in Week 1 against the Packers. He has dropped back just 60 times in the subsequent two games, 9 sacks and 51 pass attempts. DJ Moore, tight end Cole Komet, and Chase Claypool are the only pass catchers playing near every down rolls, but the upside remains solely attached to Moore and Komet. Each player is capable with the ball in their hands and provides avenues to generate mismatches anywhere on the field. Getting them the ball has been the biggest issue, and these two, in addition to Johnson, are simply not going to take screens to the house on every series as they did in preseason. Full stop on any fantasy interest beyond those three as far as pass catchers go from this offense. The matchup is non-prohibitive on paper as the secondary pieces of the Denver defense behind Pat Sertan have been shredded to this point in the season. Likeliest game flow. My read on this situation is that the offensive line for the Broncos eventually asserts control over this game environment, allowing Denver the opportunity to control a game environment for the first time this season. What that means for fantasy purposes remains completely up in the air, as we have yet to see them in that type of game environment. I would tentatively expect Javante Williams to see his most hefty workload of the early season, which could introduce some level of upside there. The problem is there are numerous pieces of speculation that we must first cross in order to get there, and the range of outcomes from this game environment is as wide as they come with so much uncertainty. We've talked about this specific aspect of DFS in the past but typically we see an extremely wide range of outcomes when we start talking about strength-on-strength or weakness-on-weakness matchups, and the latter is exactly what we have here. 
Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Ravens at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, October 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. The Cleveland defense has been nothing short of remarkable through three weeks, holding opponents to just 163.7 total yards of offense per week, first by a lot, 6.2 fantasy points to quarterbacks per week, first by a lot, 19.9 fantasy points to wide receivers per week, first by a lot, 12.6 fantasy points to running backs per week, also first, and 3.2 fantasy points to tight ends per week, also first. The Ravens have been no slouches on defense themselves, holding opponents to just 3.8 yards per carry and 4.3 net yards per pass attempt behind a forced 6.5 defensive ADOT allowed. The biggest glaring shortcoming of the Baltimore defense is a robust 34.5% blitz rate, 8th, that has led to a subpar 18.6% pressure rate. Both of these offenses are very clearly trying to figure things out in the early going, with the Ravens once again fighting through injuries and the Browns now without Nick Chubb for the season after he was such a cornerstone of their offense. Rashad Bateman, hamstring, Odell Beckham Jr. with an ankle, and Justice Hill with a foot injury did not practice Wednesday for the Ravens. Both teams are in the bottom half of the league in pace of play. These two teams are first and second in net yards allowed per pass attempt. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens, aside from a slight uptick in pass rate, don't look all that different on paper from years past, which is interesting considering the supposed massive shift in offensive philosophy with the move to offensive coordinator Todd Monken. Their pass rate over expectation value sits right around league average. Their pace of play ranks in the bottom half of the league, and they're still running 30-40% to heavy alignments through the usage of fullback Patrick Richard. And now Lamar Jackson isn't even attacking downfield at the same rate when they do pass, having his intended air yards per pass attempt fall from 8.3 in 2022 to 6.9 this season. This honestly could be another offense where we haven't seen the entire picture yet, considering the numerous offensive injuries they have suffered this season. Tight end Mark Andrews missed the first game of the year, Odell Beckham Jr. missed week three, Rashad Bateman is clearly not fully recovered from his Liz Frank injury and is now missing practice with a hamstring injury, J.K. Dobbins was lost for the season, and they've played two games without their starting offensive line intact. Gus Edwards and Melvin Gordon split the snaps and backfield work at a 44-40% split in Week 3, with Kenyon Drake playing cleanup at 15%. The big picture here is that Patrick Richard continues to be involved in the offense at a meaningful rate, and the player that should lead the team in rushing for the remainder of the season is quarterback Lamar Jackson. He has led the team in carries in each game played without Dobbins. The matchup on the ground could not be more difficult against a Browns defense holding opponents to 2.8 yards per carry and holding running backs to 12.6 points per game. No, thank you. I am not sure how this is possible, and I had to double-check the accuracy multiple times, but the Browns are currently allowing just 6.2 DK points per game to opposing quarterbacks this season. I guess that's what happens when you've allowed just one offensive touchdown all season. Their 3.5 net yards allowed per pass attempt ranks first in the league by a wide margin. Combine the elite performance through the air for the Browns with the now conservative approach from the Ravens and their lowered intended air yards per pass attempt number this year, and we're left with an offense that is likely going to have to march the field through dink and dunk pass attempts this week. Furthermore, Rashad Bateman and Odell Beckham Jr. missed practice on Wednesday, potentially leaving just rookie Zay Flowers, 
tight end Mark Andrews, Nelson Aguilar, and Devin Duvernay as the top pass catchers this week. Lamar Jackson's time to throw is the quickest of his career in 2023 at 2.82 seconds, which makes sense considering the injuries up front and the underperforming nature of the offensive line and pass-blocking metrics thus far. That could spell trouble against a Cleveland defense that is generating pressure at the highest rate in the league, 32.3%. Another nod to a likely short area approach through the air for the Ravens here. How Cleveland will try to win. First off, Deshaun Watson has not been good to start the season. The truth is, however, that he hasn't really needed to be. The Cleveland defense has given up a grand total of 19 points through three games, consisting of four field goals and one 71-yard touchdown to George Pickens. Yes, Watson lost the Browns their Week 2 game against the Steelers, throwing a pick-six on the first offensive play of the game, and then taking a bad sack that resulted in a strip-six late in the fourth quarter. As long as Watson can be the game manager that he was in Week 1 against the Bengals, and in Week 3 against the hapless Titans secondary, this team is going to win some games. The biggest knock to that situation is the loss of Nick Chubb for the season, as now Watson is going to be leaned on a bit more to move the football, which he did well against the Titans. As far as the offense goes, Amari Cooper is the unquestioned alpha, while the bulk of the the move-the-chain aerial offense runs through the dynamic but diminutive Elijah Moore. Head coach Kevin Stefanski hails from the Mike Zimmer coaching tree and formerly served as a quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator for the Vikings. His pass-to-set-up-the-run mentality was an interesting fit for a team with Nick Chubb on the roster, which has largely kept his pass-leaning mentalities at bay. Now, with Chubb no longer in the picture for the remainder of the season, it will be interesting to see how he approaches winning games. Expect a more pass-balanced offense moving forward, which the team exhibited in their Week 3 win over the pass-funnel Titans. That game served as their second-highest PROE value over the previous two seasons at just under 8%. Does that continue here against another pass-funnel defense? I guess we'll find out, but I think it does. The run game was some Frankenstein concoction with Jerome Ford leading the way in Week 3. That game marked the first game without Nick Chubb. Even with Ford seeing a 56% snap rate, his 13 running back opportunities were saved by finding the end zone twice. Pierre Strong saw 6 opportunities, and the recently re-signed Kareem Hunt saw 8 in his first game back with the franchise, including 3 targets. The Ravens are one of just five teams that have yet to allow a rushing score on the season and are allowing just 3.8 yards per carry. With the uncertainty surrounding the backfield opportunity splits and the difficult matchup on paper, there is enough here to simply leave it alone altogether. And we didn't even have to mention the fact that seven different players rushed the football at least once, including Elijah Moore three times, Marquise Goodwin once, tight end Harrison Bryant twice, and all three active backs. Things don't get much cleaner through the air, with Baltimore holding opponents to just 4.3 net yards per pass attempt on an insanely low 6.5 defensive ADOT and just 322 total air yards allowed through three games. Even worse, the player on the field the most for the Browns is Donovan Peoples-Jones, who has seen a tight range of 87-89% to of the weekly snaps. Behind him, Amari Cooper, Elijah Moore, and tight end David Njoku have a combined one game with a snap rate over a modest 80%. The ability of the Ravens' defense to force short area work and the designed short area schemed usage for Moore leads to a likeliest scenario where it's him leading the team in targets for the third time in four weeks. His 25 targets are tied with Cooper for the team lead this season, but he holds a modest 7.8 ADOT. His short area shiftiness has allowed him to generate significant separation, 14th ranked 2.2 average separation at target, 
within five yards of the line of scrimmage, which has provided the struggling Watson with a solid outlet early in the season. That discussion notwithstanding, it remains Cooper that carries the highest per game and per target upside, but this matchup and expected game environment do not combine well for a solid hit rate here. David Njoku's reportedly solid preseason connection with Watson has not carried over to when games matter just yet, as he currently holds minuscule values in target share, 11%, targets per route run rate, 12.9%, and ADOT, 1.8. Yes, you heard that right. Lol. Likeliest Game Flow This one sets up for a good old-fashioned AFC North slugfest, with the strength of each team very clearly their defense. That assertion is exacerbated by the surprisingly tight race atop the division in the early goings and each head coach's propensity to not want to lose these tight games through unwarranted aggression. Jim Schwartz has found the perfect mix of talent and athleticism for his aggressive blitz rates and heavy man coverage rates, holding opponents to ridiculously low efficiency through three games. On the other side, the poor play of Deshaun Watson and the loss of Nick Chubb have the Browns scrambling to figure their offense out while there is still time. In other words, I wouldn't let Watson's performance against the hapless Titans sway early season opinions. He has not passed the eye test up to this point. That leaves this game likeliest to play out as a relative field position battle between two teams looking to outlast the other in a battle of attrition. Steelers at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, October 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Pittsburgh enters this game with a 2-1 record, and their victories have primarily been driven by their defense. Pittsburgh's offense is a work in progress as they deal with the absence of Deontay Johnson due to injury and a lack of the running game. Houston is coming off a huge divisional win in Jacksonville and looking to build on their own growing success after showing progress each week so far. Number two overall pick C.J. Stroud looks every bit the part of a franchise quarterback through three games and has yet to throw an interception despite attempting 121 passes already. Both of these teams play at a brisk pace, ranking 5th and 6th in the NFL in seconds per play on offense. How Pittsburgh will try to win. The Steelers enter Week 3 with a 2-1 record, and sit in a three-way tie for the AFC North Division lead. They have done this primarily on the back of a strong defense after scoring two defensive touchdowns courtesy of Deshaun Watson in Week 2, and holding the Raiders under 20 points, which has happened in every Las Vegas game this year on Sunday Night Football. The Steelers' offensive line may be their biggest issue, ranking 32nd in PFF pass-blocking grade and 29th in run-blocking. They are playing without star-wide receiver Deontay Johnson, whose ability to separate quickly for short-area targets was an integral part of their offense's ability to overcome these offensive line deficiencies. They've made a couple of big plays in each of the past two weeks, but have had a lot of trouble sustaining drives. This week, they play the Houston Texans, whose head coach, D'Amico Ryans, was previously the defensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers, who coincidentally absolutely dominated this Steelers offense in Week 1. While Houston doesn't have the same level of individual talent as the 49ers, their schemes, terminology, and concepts are almost certainly very similar, and he should be able to derive a game plan that makes things very difficult for the Steelers. Pittsburgh ranks 9th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation and 5th in the NFL in seconds per snap a.k.a. Tempo. This quick-moving offense has not resulted in strong production, however, as they rank 27th in the league in yards per game through three weeks despite a 70-plus yard touchdown pass in each of the last two weeks. Najee Harris and Jalen Warren are both getting opportunities but have struggled to sustain success due to their struggling offensive line play and inconsistent passing game. The Texans do rank 31st in the NFL in run defense DVOA, 
but that isn't necessarily a great thing for Pittsburgh as it somewhat forces their hand into their least efficient method of attack. The Steelers will certainly take the bait early in this game, however, as they have won back-to-back games relying on their defense and are not going to want to box themselves into a corner with early mistakes from being too aggressive. How Houston will try to win The Texans have been allowing rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud to let it rip to start his NFL career. While the first two weeks were significantly affected by game script, it is notable that the Texans have the 7th highest pass rate in the NFL so far this year. Stroud has not disappointed, as he has zero interceptions through three games despite attempting over 40 passes per game. This is also notable because it isn't like he's been playing a bunch of pushover defenses. The Ravens in Week 1 before they got hit by injuries, the Colts defense in Week 2, and the Jaguars defense in Week 3, who had contained Patrick Mahomes the week before. Houston ranks 6th in the NFL in pace of play while throwing the ball right around their expected rate, showing that they are letting their rookie QB play fast and not holding him back with conservative approaches. Pittsburgh's defense has been solid in terms of sacks and turnovers the last couple of weeks, but they rank 28th in the NFL in yards allowed per game. Houston has been able to move the ball every week this season, and it seems like they should be able to do the same here. The Steelers' pass defense has been very good this year, ranking 7th in pass defense DVOA, but this particular matchup could set up nicely for the Texans. Pittsburgh ranks 12th in the NFL in man coverage rate, while receivers Nico Collins and Tank Dell both excel against man coverage. John Mechie hasn't been much of a factor this year, and Dalton Schultz has only 14 targets through three games, leaving the passing game focus on Dell, Collins, and Robert Woods. Those three have combined for over 50% of the team's targets in every game this year, and 57.9% of the total targets on the season. The Texans are not going to abandon the run completely in this game, and Pittsburgh has been anything but a brick wall against the run, ranking 29th in the league in yards per carry allowed, but the Texans are likely to lean heavily on Stroud's arm once again this week, as their primary method of moving the ball. Likeliest Game Flow This game sets up as a relatively mundane game environment. The Texans game last week in Jacksonville is basically the exact game script that D'Amico Ryans would love to have play out every week, take control of the game early, and use a fundamentally sound defense that doesn't take chances to make things difficult on their opponent. Houston's defense struggled with Baltimore and Indianapolis in the first two weeks, as their run defense was abused and they had particular struggles dealing with dual-threat quarterbacks Lamar Jackson and Anthony Richardson. The Ravens exploited the attention Jackson was given with their running backs picking up the production and touchdowns, while Richardson ran wild on the Texans before leaving due to injury, although the damage was already done at that point. The Steelers' offense is very vanilla, and Kenny Pickett is not that type of quarterback, however, so it is unlikely that the Texans will get hammered early to open up this game environment. This leaves the Steelers' offense likely in a 13-24 point scoring range and the Texans' offense with a similar scoring range, although a higher probability of popping into that 24-31 point range due to the Texans' offense looking more potent and healthy through the air. Both of these offenses play fast, however, and both teams struggle to run the ball. This leads to some volatility at predicting the outcome as it could end up with a low-scoring punt fest as both teams stay conservative and run it with little success, or... It could end up in a situation where neither team can run the ball, so they say, forget it, and we end up with a game where both teams are slinging it all over the yard. It will be very interesting to see how it plays out and how the coaches respond to their own efficiency, or lack thereof. Rams at Colts. Kickoff Sunday, October 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 46. Game Overview by Hilo. Anthony Richardson was a full participant in practice Wednesday and should make his return to the starting lineup after missing one game with a concussion. 
Tyler Higby was listed as DNP with an Achilles injury on the Rams' estimated practice report Wednesday. Los Angeles played on Monday night, meaning their first full practice will come Thursday. Michael Pittman should continue to see double-digit looks week in and week out, but his 5.9 ADOT and 6.8 yards per target leave little in the way of pure upside at his cost. The Colts have been most susceptible to perimeter wide receivers, but have run zone coverage at one of the highest rates in the league. The wide receiver that has seen the most targets against zone coverage this season is none other than Puka Nakua. How Los Angeles will try to win. The Rams rank 14th in seconds per play at 27.9 and are 6th in pass rate over expectation through three weeks. Los Angeles has battled through injuries along their offensive line and varied personnel groupings up front, which has led to an underperforming offensive line to this point in the season. Even so, head coach Sean McVay continues to design and operate an offense that places continued stress on opposing defenses in multiple areas of the field via layered route concepts designed to get his playmakers in space with the ball in their hands. Furthermore, quarterback Matthew Stafford has experienced a relative career resurgence after missing portions of the 2022 season with a back and neck injury, currently ranking fourth in pass yards, second in intended air yards, third in completed air yards per completion, and eighth in intended air yards per pass attempt. He also somewhat quietly ranks second in total pass completions through three games, behind only Kirk Cousins. This team should continue slinging the rock in their hunt to prove the doubters wrong this season. Following the doghousing and subsequent trade of Cam Akers, Kyron Williams has played 95% and 100% of the team's offensive snaps out of the backfield. Sean McVay noted this week that the insane workload from Williams is likely unsustainable, but he and the team have expressed little optimism surrounding backups Ronnie Rivers and Royce Freeman to this point in the season. The Colts have allowed opponents to average the third highest rush rate over expectation through three games, but it would take a large leap of faith to project McVeigh to tilt to a more run-heavy approach based on previous tendencies. Even so, a valid expectation of 14-16 to 16 carries and a handful of targets puts Williams in the top 7 or 8 in expected workload this week in what should be viewed as a neutral to positive game script. As mentioned earlier, the Colts have run some of the highest rates of zone coverage found in the league this year, and Puka Nakua has been number 1 against zone for these Rams. That should remain moving forward, at least until Cooper Cup returns to the lineup from his hamstring injury. Now consider that the Bengals went into Week 3 running top 10 rates of man coverage, and it begins to make sense why we saw Nakua's target totals dip from his historic pace. This matchup presents a nice opportunity for those targets to spike once more. The Rams shifted to an offense based almost entirely from 11 personnel after experimenting with inflated rates of 12 personnel in Week 1. That has left an extremely concentrated pass offense amongst Nakua, Tutu Atwell, and Tyler Higby, with Van Jefferson running a lot of empty routes as the safety manipulator on the offense, and Kyron Williams chipping in with 17 targets over the previous two games. We touched on Stafford's relative resurgence above, with the lone missing piece to his fantasy puzzle being touchdowns to this point in the season. At some point, that shortcoming is likely to correct fast and hard, which might require Cup's return to the roster. Or it might not, and nobody will be stacking up Stafford. Even with the up-and-down performance from the offensive line, tight end Tyler Higby has run the second-most routes amongst tight ends this season and carries a healthy-for-a-tight-end 7.2 ADOT. The offense has simply been so hyper-focused on getting Nakua in space against zone coverage that his fantasy expectations take a slight hit in this spot. How Indianapolis Will Try to Win Many are and were calling for Gardner Minshew to remain the starting quarterback for the Colts after leading an upset win over the Ravens in overtime in Week 3. While it may be true that Minshew gives this team the best chance of winning games in the current state of the Colts, 
the team and coaching staff committed to developing Richardson from the day they drafted him. Furthermore, they view Richardson as their future and are highly likely to remain committed to his development regardless of their record in the win-loss column this year. Minshew might be one of the better backup quarterbacks in the league, but his upside and ceiling are rather capped, particularly when compared side-by-side to that of Richardson. As such, we should expect Richardson to slide right back into the starting quarterback role as long as he is cleared of his concussion symptoms and clears the league's five-step protocol, which it appears as if he is very close to doing, considering he was a full participant in practice Wednesday. On the matter of Steichen's offense, I don't think we have seen the end product just yet. Richardson's two best traits as a quarterback are his elite athleticism and his elite arm strength, yet his current intended air yards per pass attempt ranks dead last in the league at 4.9, of 34 qualified quarterbacks. That said, we've seen enough to assume Steichen wants his offense playing with pace, second fastest overall pace so far, and a dynamic offensive design aimed at exploiting opposing weaknesses. The Colts have been highly adaptable as far as situational play calling tendencies are concerned through three weeks. Their offense has run primarily from 11 personnel, with varied utilization of 12 based on game environment. Jonathan Taylor is making it increasingly evident that he doesn't plan on playing another snap for the Colts, and owner Jim Ursay is making it increasingly evident that he doesn't intend on negotiating a new contract for the beleaguered running back. That leaves this team in the hands of Zach Moss and, most recently, Trey Sermon. Deion Jackson was released following Week 2, and rookie Evan Hall suffered a season-ending injury. Jake Funk has been active each week but hasn't played an offensive snap since the opening game of the season. Moss's snap rate fell from an absurd 98% in Week 2 to a borderline elite 76% in Week 3, but his 33 total running back opportunities were the most a back has seen this season. It is clear that this backfield is Moss's in its current state. The matchup on the ground is poor on paper, but so too was it last week against the Ravens, and the Colts continued to pound the rock in their narrow victory. Talent? Okay. Opportunity? Elite. Cost? Meh. That said, any back averaging 27.5 opportunities per game and over 23 DK points per game is worthy of consideration at that level of snaps and involvement in the offense, regardless of matchup. The pass offense has been highly concentrated amongst its top two pass catchers, veteran wide receiver Michael Pittman and rookie Josh Downs. Pittman currently sports an elite 30.4% target market share and solid 26.8% targets per route run rate, but his 5.9 ADOT leaves fewer paths to elite fantasy outings, considering a poor 6.8 yards per target value, 68th in the league. Similarly, Josh Downs ranks top 36 in target share, 21.4%, and TPRR, 23.5%, but carries a minuscule 4.9 ADOT, while primarily running from the slot second most slot snaps this season behind just Adam Thielen. Pittman has seen a tight distribution of looks, having seen 11 or 12 targets in all three games thus far, while Down saw his highest usage of the season in Week 3 with 12 looks of his own. Even so, the short area emphasis of this offense has meant either would require elite efficiency and multiple touchdowns to provide a GPP-worthy score, which is a statistical improbability in their respective current roles. Alec Pierce is the downfield safety manipulator of this offense, carrying an elite route participation rate, 100%, and elite ADOT, 17.2, 7th in the league, but low target share, 10.7%, and TPRR, 10%. In this offense's current form, Pierce is most valuable for what he does to opposing defenses in stark contrast to what he can do from a fantasy perspective. Behind those three, whichever three of the four tight ends on the roster are active on game day are going to rotate through, with Kyle Granson leading the way in snaps. 
That said, he has peaked at just 65% snap rate, has a similarly low ADOT, 5.1, and is in a route on just 79.3% of the team's called pass plays. One final note here. The Rams have forced the 11th highest opponent pass rate over expectation this season, as teams have found it difficult to sustain success on the ground against them. Likeliest Game Flow Although the likeliest scenario leaves this game environment finishing in a tight range about its median, there are clear paths to upside considering the composition of each of these rosters, the elite upside from Anthony Richardson, and the coaches involved. McVay and Steichen have to be considered two of the top five offensive minds in the league at present, and a situation where each is trying to outdo the other is a valid outcome from this game. As was touched on above, Matthew Stafford's touchdown rates are likely to correct at some point this season, considering the offensive scheme and some variants. The Rams, as a team, also have the most drops this season at 11, another spot for additional upside to eventually present itself. As for the Colts, anytime Anthony Richardson is on the field, there is opportunity for this offense to erupt. It is going to happen at some point. That said, the likeliest scenario remains an offense that is forced to march the field due to their emphasis on the short areas of the field. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Buccaneers at the Saints. Kick off Sunday, October 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 39.5. Game Overview by Pappy Jameis Winston adds a lot of variance to this game. Rashad White and Alvin Kamara are both underpriced for their anticipated touches. Mike Evans is set for his yearly duel with Marshawn Lattimore. Chris Olave has plenty of upside if the Saints coaching staff lets Jameis cook. How Tampa Bay will try to win the 2-1 Bucks got their first taste of reality on Monday night, coming off wins against the defenseless Bears and Vikings. They kept it close against the Eagles, only losing by two scores, but anyone watching the game knew it was never in doubt. The Bucks are good enough to beat weaker competition, but they are clearly below the NFL's upper echelon teams. They felt like pretenders at 2-0, and still felt that way at 2-1. Fortunately for them, Weak matchups are a regular occurrence when you play in the NFC South. This week, they catch a Saints team who is likely without their starting QB in a game that could have surprisingly important implications in the standings at the end of the season. If Baker Mayfield wants to prove he is an above-average NFL QB, this is the type of game he must win. Without Tom Brady, the Bucks have dialed back their situation-neutral pass rate to just over 50%, 27th. When they tried to open things up against the Eagles, it didn't go well. Todd Bowles seems to be trying to win games by being remarkably average. In fact, the Bucks are remarkably middle of the road. They're 21st in DVOA at running the ball, 16th at throwing, 15th at defending the pass, and 13th at defending the run. Their offensive line ranks 14th, per PFF. They had run-pass splits in their two close games of 33-34 and 34 and 34-34. and 34. They opened it up a little more against the Eagles, 17-25, and 25, but that's because they were chasing points and ran a pitiful 42 plays. The Saints have been more attackable on the ground, 16th in DVOA, then through the air, 3rd in DVOA, and that fits into how the Bucks want to attack. They've shown that in competitive games, they're going to play a run-balanced offense, hoping to keep things close and win by making more plays in the fourth quarter. 
How New Orleans will try to win. The 2-1 Saints come into Week 4 having played all three of their opening games within three points. Their opponents were the Titans, Panthers, and Packers, which isn't exactly a list of the best teams in the NFL. Those games give us an idea of what level of team the Saints are this year. The Buccaneers are a similarly skilled team, as are the Falcons, and whichever team emerges the victor in their head-to-head games is likely to take the division. That dynamic makes this game very important from a real-life football perspective. Dennis Allen has been around long enough to understand what this game means, and he is going to do everything he can to work around his mistake-prone starting QB while letting his defense keep him in the game. The Saints were playing fast under Derek Carr, but he is currently regarded as week-to-week, and this game is expected to be started by Jameis Winston. The Saints had been playing fast under Derek Carr, but there is no guarantee that it will stay the same under Winston. Even assuming they stick with the same style of play, it doesn't assure success. Winston has been a lot like Brett Favre throughout his career, but his play style isn't appreciated the same way it was in 1994, a time when NFL coaches would call three runs up the middle, only to punt on fourth and one. A time when you thought watching Favre chuck 50-50 balls was the greatest thing you had ever seen. A simpler time. A better time. With our silly modern-day stats, Winston's aggressive style doesn't look nearly as appealing, and coaches have consistently tried to reel in his gunslinger mentality. The Bucks' defense is a solid across the board, and can give weaker offenses problems, which is more of a reason the Saints should try and limit Winston's ability to throw interceptions behind a poor offensive line, 22nd ranked per PFF. The Saints have been a do-what-we-do team this year, as they didn't skew pass-heavy against the Titans. Expect them to continue playing pass-balanced while hoping to win the game without giving Winston opportunities to make mistakes. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a low total of 40.5, which makes sense since neither of these teams has created high-scoring game environments and the Saints just lost their starting QB. It's not like the Saints were explosive with Carr anyway, with their games averaging the fewest total points in the league at 34.3. The Bucks are barely better at 39, which is the 8th fewest points per game. Both teams have above-average defenses and weak offenses. This is likely to be a game that features a lot of punts, running, and trying to limit mistakes. The Saints have been installed as a negative 3 home favorite, even with Winston set to start, which shows that Derek Carr wasn't playing all that great. Expect a grinded-out affair with a game that features a low number of plays, lots of running, and the announcers saying field position throughout the game. The Commanders at the Eagles kick off Sunday, October 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Hilo The Eagles' defense special teams is one of the top on-paper defenses for Week 4's main slate. Sam Howell has targeted his tight ends, Logan Thomas, John Bates, and Cole Turner, on 32% of his pass attempts this season. The Philadelphia defense has one soft spot in coverage, opposing tight ends over the middle of the field. The Eagles started the season playing almost exclusively from nickel defensive alignments, but had to adjust following the loss of Avante Maddox. Still, Josh Joby stepped into the starting lineup in Week 3 and played 57% of the defensive snaps. The Commanders could struggle to sustain drives with little ability shown to attack downfield in their present state, 
meaning the Eagles' defense is likely to have numerous opportunities to rack up the sacks and disrupt drives in this spot. How Washington will try to win The Commanders currently hold the league's fifth-highest pass rate over expectation, but are still averaging just 33 pass attempts per game through three weeks of play. A lot of that is likely skewed by opening games against the Cardinals and Broncos, two teams that should end the season near the bottom of the league in record. Furthermore, Washington ran just 54 offensive plays in its Week 3 dismantling at the hands of the Bills, which managed a ridiculous 9 sacks and 5 turnovers against the spotty offensive line of the Commanders. In truth, we don't have a very clear picture of how this offense is likely to run throughout the remainder of the season, considering the new offensive coordinator in Eric Bieniemy and what we have seen to this point in the season. I loosely expect them to continue in a pass-heavy offense, mostly looking to attack the short to intermediate areas of the field, as quarterback Howell currently sports a modest 6.7 IAYPA, intended air yards per pass attempt, 29th in the league. The bulk of the offense has run through the running backs, tight ends, and slot-wide receiver Curtis Samuel. Samuel has led the team in receiving two of the commander's three games so far, but that doesn't say much considering his modest 54-yard outputs in those two contests. Either way, it appears as if the schemed-usage-gadget-type role from Bienemy's time in Kansas City has translated to Samuel in the change of scenery. Leadback Brian Robinson saw a massive hit in usage against the Bills in Week 2 after seeing 42 combined opportunities through two weeks, each of which were played in competitive game environments. Considering the opponent, the matchup, and the expected game environment, we have to think Robinson might see another reduced role in this one. His snap rate fell all the way to 37% against the Bills, and he managed just 10 running back opportunities. That argument strengthens when we consider the fact the Eagles have forced the fifth highest PROE against this season. Teams simply cannot run effectively against them, which forces a shift to a more pass-heavy approach to move the ball. While change of pace back Antonio Gibson saw his highest snap rate of the season against the Bills at 61%, that only translated to two carries and five targets, meaning this backfield is more of a stay-away unit than anything in this spot. Touchdowns can obviously still flow somewhere should the commanders find some level of offensive success, but it's a pretty thin bet in this spot. As mentioned above, the commanders' tight ends have accounted for 32% of quarterback Howell's targets this season. Thomas started the season with a massive 80% snap rate share before leaving Week 2 early with a concussion and missing Week 3 entirely. Expect him back in the lineup this week coming off his concussion, which shouldn't dent his expected snap rate like some other injuries would. Thomas saw 11 targets in just under six quarters of play as the starter before being injured. Unfortunately for Terry McLaurin and Jahan Dodson, Howell holds a tiny IAYPA value of 6.7 in an offense that has been forced largely to string together drives as opposed to hunting for splash plays. It just so happens that the matchup against the Eagles primarily aligns with that plan of attack, as their linebacking core is much more ferocious in the pass rush as compared to how they perform in coverage. The Eagles have allowed the second most fantasy points per game to opposing tight ends this season, getting shredded in Week 1 by Hunter Henry and in Week 2 by TJ Hawkinson. Expect Curtis Samuel to once again see the schemed short area usage in a spot that is more difficult than in previous weeks, considering the heavy nickel utilization from the Eagles' defense. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win 
It has largely been business as usual for the Eagles to start the 2023 season. They rode out to a 16-0 lead in the first quarter against the Patriots in Week 1 and were able to run a run-balanced offense through Kenneth Gainwell. In Week 2, they went up 27-7 only four minutes into the second half against the Vikings, and Jalen Hurts only attempted 23 passes. Then, in Week 3 against the stout front of the Buccaneers, they were able to jump out to a 20-3 lead just over five minutes into the second half and fed DeAndre Swift and Gainwell 30 combined carries. And if we look at how they are able to accomplish this seemingly every game, we begin to realize that it stems from their defensive philosophy. They have built their defense around stopping the run and forcing teams to throw against them, after which their elite pass rush, like Mega Elite, can tee off on opposing quarterbacks. Sweet sounds of harmony after the Commanders allowed nine sacks against the Bills a week ago. Now consider that the Commanders are averaging a full three minutes fewer time of possession per game to start 2023 when compared to last season, and it begins to become clear how this offense is likeliest to operate in this matchup. The modest time of possession, numerous turnovers, 2.7 per game, 31st in the league, and declining offensive and defensive lines for the Commanders have resulted in them facing the fifth highest rush rate over expectation through three weeks. In standard Philadelphia fashion, running back snap rates have been all over the map to start the season. Kenneth Gainwell began the year as the legitimate featured back before suffering a rib injury that kept him from action in Week 2. In that Week 2 game, DeAndre Swift took on a workhorse role on the back of a solid 75% snap rate. Boston Scott and Rashad Penny remained afterthoughts. Then in Week 3, with Gainwell returning from his one-game absence, the two split the work almost down the middle on a 54-46 snap rate split. That snap rate split was honestly shocking considering Swift erupted for 175 yards on the ground in Week 2. In another spot where we expect the Eagles' defense to control the game, another 30 combined carries and a handful of targets split in some fashion between Swift and Gainwell is in the cards. The Commanders are allowing a robust 4.8 yards per running back carry in 2023, which ranks 27th in the league. Quarterback Jalen Hurts has also accounted for just over 10 rush attempts per game through three weeks, 31 total, with a tight distribution about the mean. 9 carries, 12 carries, and 10 carries. Final note here, the Eagles continue to boast a top 3 offensive line, depending on where you look, one that's capable in both run-blocking and pass-blocking areas of play. Nick Sirianni's offensive scheme utilizes heavy rates of 12 personnel and zero 21 personnel, dependent on matchup and game flow. That typically allows for the team's wide receiver three to log 60-80% to of the offensive snaps, with A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, and Dallas Goddard in every-down roles. Kez Watkins, DNP Wednesday with his hamstring injury, or Alameda Zacchaeus in the wide receiver three role, and Jack Stoll and Grant Calcaterra sweeping up the scraps at tight end. The Eagles can typically win through any of the three primary pass catchers, Brown, Smith, and Goddard due to layered route concepts and offensive scheme designed to stress multiple areas of the field, with the biggest knock to their weekly expectations being there's no clear and true alpha amongst the trio, and the offense's propensity to kick into game management mode with a lead. The Commanders have allowed a healthy 8.7 defensive ADOT this season, but have faced only 94 total pass attempts through three weeks, which aligns with how we expect the Eagles to attack here low overall pass volume, attacking deep when they do throw, and a solid expectation for touchdowns to be scored in some fashion.
Likeliest Game Flow This game features two teams with polar opposite defensive philosophies. The Eagles are built to stop the run and force teams to pass against them. And when teams do begin to turn towards the air, their ferocious pass rush barrels down. The Commanders want to mimic these tendencies and have invested significantly in their pass rush in recent history. But the lack of offensive success, low time of possession, and poor turnover differential have put their defense in unwanted territory, allowing opposing teams to carry the fifth lowest PROE through three games. This means we're likeliest to see the Eagles control this game via their extreme mismatch up front on both sides of the ball which should allow them to bias their attack towards the ground game at a higher rate as the game unfolds, and should force the commanders into increased rates of passing situations. That, in turn, could lead to additional opportunities for their elite pass rush to find success in getting to Howell. Consider the Philadelphia defense one of the top, on paper, defenses this week. The Bengals at the Titans Kickoff Sunday, October 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Hilo Jamar Chase saw a career-high six targets when aligned in the slot and also saw the most slot snaps of his career in Week 3 against the Rams. It appears as if the Bengals are finally attempting to design something in their offense to optimize against two high defensive alignments. Joe Burrow currently sports the lowest IAYPA, intended air yards per pass attempt, of his career at 6.5, which ranks at 32nd in the league. Tennessee forces the 6th highest opponent pass rate over expectation value on the season, behind just the 49ers, Jaguars, Lions, Buccaneers, and Eagles. Derrick Henry currently sports the lowest yards before contact and yards after contact numbers of his career, and he's seeing an average of 6.9 men in the box on his carries. DeAndre Hopkins has exactly 9, 9 yards after the catch through three games. How Cincinnati will try to win We've spoken of the general shift to a too-high base defense around the league in multiple places so far this season. We've also spoken to the Bengals' general struggles in adapting to being shown two high defensive alignments over the previous two seasons. Nothing explains this more than by taking a look at Burrow's IAYPA shift during his career. His 8.5 and 8.1 IAYPA values during his first two professional seasons would place him in the top 10 at that position this year. But during the 2022 and 2023 seasons, those values dropped to 6.8 and 6.5 respectively. His 6.5 IAYPA value this season ranks 32nd, ahead of just Dak Prescott, more on him a different time, and Anthony Richardson in terms of qualified passers. And up until last week, we hadn't seen much in the way of a specific game plan to maximize potential against two high looks. But in the Bengals' Week 3 Monday night against the Rams, an opponent that plays heavy rates of two high defensive alignments, we finally saw Zach Taylor do something, anything, to optimize his offense versus that alignment. And it revolved almost exclusively around his utilization of Chase. Joe Mixon maintains his status as the unquestioned lead back in this offense, commanding an elite 81.8% opportunity share and averaging a solid 5.1 yards per touch on his opportunities, 17th in the league. 
And his efficiency metrics have actually improved this season, ranking 6th in total yards created and 10th in yards created per touch. One of the benefits of playing in an offense helmed by Burrow and containing elite pieces such as Chase and T. Higgins is what it forces opponents to show Mixon as far as defensive fronts go. Mixon has averaged just 6.3 defenders in the box on his carries this season, which ranks 47th in the league. The lower that number, the better. The touchdown woes largely continue into 2023 for Mixon, who managed just four total touchdowns outside his five-touchdown eruption in Week 9 against the Panthers a season ago. A lot of that thus far this year has to do with an offense averaging just 1.7 red zone scoring opportunities per game through three weeks, 31st in the league. The matchup is also about as difficult as it could be against a Titans defense that places extreme emphasis on stomping opposing run games and forcing their opposition to beat them through the air. Expect Trayvon Williams to operate as the primary change of pace back until further notice. Alrighty then. Yes, said in our best Ace Ventura voice. Back to the fun stuff. In the first time in forever. Yes, said in our best Anna of Arendale voice. The Bengals showed us something to take advantage of two high defensive alignments in Week 3. Chase saw the highest slot snap rate of his entire career against the Rams and commanded a robust 15 targets, tied for the second most in a game of his career. The offense also attempted to introduce pre-snap motion, which is one of the ways offensive coordinators are manipulating opposing safeties against two high shells. It is highly unlikely that we see this team utilize a downfield burner in the form of a classic Z-type wide receiver, as they simply don't have a player on the roster capable of that role outside of Chase, and they would be wise not to limit his route tree that much. This basically leaves them reliant on pre-snap motion, schemed usage, and Burrow's body positioning and eyes in the pocket to manipulate opposing safeties. But they are finally making strides in that area. Let's hope that Chase's new role in this offense continues beyond Burrow's injured calf. Higgins is kind of just the same player we've always known him to be. A 4.5940 plus size wide receiver that can win in a moderate to deep X-type wide receiver role. Higgins has no less than three drops a week ago, which does not instill confidence moving forward. But he's also always capable of putting up a multi-touchdown game considering his role in this offense. Tyler Boyd is also the same player we've always known him to be, a lot A-dot slot receiver that largely struggles to provide upside with the ball in his hands. Tight end Irv Smith missed week three with a hamstring injury and is now on a short week with the Bengals having played Monday. Drew Sample, Mitchell Wilcox, and Tanner Hudson split snaps evenly in his absence, all seeing between 32 and 36 offensive snaps against the Rams. The final aspect to note here is the continued propensity for teams to simply lean on the pass against the Titans, which are currently forcing the sixth highest opponent PROE behind the 49ers, Jaguars, Lions, Buccaneers, and Eagles. How Tennessee will try to win. The Titans continue to try to win the same way they have over the previous six seasons under head coach Mike Vrabel, except now they have the league's worst offensive line on paper. As in, even with changing dynamics with the personnel on their roster, the Titans continue to play with slow pace, hunker down against the run on defense, and try to will their way to wins via a third-to-last pass rate over expectation. Said another way, the Chicago Bears and Atlanta Falcons, two teams that were challenging for historical rush rates a season ago, currently average more pass attempts per game than these Titans, 27.7. In fact, 
Only the new-look Cardinals average fewer pass attempts per game through three weeks. And yet, behind the league's worst defensive line and after signing Hopkins in free agency, the game plan remains static. So, is Henry washed? Well, let's see. Henry is averaging the lowest yards per carry of his career. By far, 3.2. But his offensive line is also blocking to just 1.6 yards before contact per attempt. That said, he has also broken just three tackles through three games and is averaging just 1.6 yards after contact per attempt, lowest of his career. Some of that begins to look suspect on the backdrop of, this 29-year-old running back has led the league in carries in three of the previous four years, and the year he didn't was an injury-shortened season in which he led the league in carries per game before being hurt, 27.4. And while the team may think they are doing him a solid by working in rookie Ty J. Spears, Henry's extreme touch-to-snap ratio has simply meant that teams know a run is coming when he is on the field and can load the box accordingly. Henry has seen an average of 6.9 men in the box on his carries and has seen a light box on just 30% of his totes, the latter of which ranks 44th in the league. As in, teams simply throw bodies at Henry when he is on the field because play calling is that face up. Basically, Henry is playing poker with his whole cards exposed this season. Good luck winning in that situation. Spears has been an integral piece of this offense, but his snap rates and opportunity rates have been highly dependent on game environment. In the Titans' Week 2 overtime win over the Chargers, Henry played a more standard for him 71% of the offensive snaps and handled 25 carries and 4 targets, compared to 8 carries and 2 targets for Spears. But in both losses, Week 1 and Week 3, Henry managed a combined 26 carries and 3 targets. Spears continues to see a higher rate of empty snaps, but his snap rates see a dramatic spike in negative game environments. The matchup on the ground is non-prohibitive against a Bengals defense allowing a robust 5.1 yards per carry through three games. But the uncertainty introduced via a poor offensive line and a matchup with Lou Anarumo's defense yields a fantasy profile we shouldn't be overjoyed to employ. Ryan Tannehill's sparse 59% completion percentage this season is the lowest since his rookie season with the Dolphins in 2012. That said, his 9.3 average intended air yards is the second highest of his career, 2019, leaving the potential for upside should he improve his efficiency metrics. Hopkins currently boasts an elite 30.9% team target market share and elite 33.3% targets per route run rate, which both rank in the top eight in the league. The problem with his fit in the offense and scheme is that his standard route tree at this point in his career leaves very little room for upside on a per-touch basis. As evidenced by a modest 9.7 A dot and a grand total of 9. 9! total yards after the catch through three games. Grandma Alice saw more than nine yards after the catch in the family game last Thanksgiving. Traylon Burks and Nick Westbrookikine play a distant second and third fiddle in this offense, accounting for just 16.1% and 12.4% of the team targets, respectively. Tight end Chagosium Anconquo has taken a second-year leap in the form of increased snap rates, but still has commanded just 12.4% of the team's targets on a minuscule 13.3% targets per route run rate. In its present form, this offense is very much nook and then everyone else as far as aerial involvement goes. 
That said, the matchup against the Bengals is best, on paper, for opposing tight ends, providing a path to upside for Onkonkwo should the Titans look to exploit those tendencies. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams have a very clear path in how we expect them to behave in this spot, with the Titans continuing to lean on an ineffective run game built around Henry, and with the Bengals leaning into an impressive pass offense, schematically, built around Chase in an expanded route tree. I wouldn't expect Burrow's average IAY value to suddenly increase here, meaning Chase will need to see volume, likely, break off a long catch and run, moderately likely, and or find the end zone, moderately likely, to return a true GPP-worthy score at his inflated price tag. But that is well within his range of outcomes in this spot. As things currently stand, and based on the usage we saw in Week 3 on a more forward-leaning Bengals offense, Chase currently stands as one of the top on-paper plays at wide receiver position on this slate. This game environment has very few paths to true eruption considering the low A-dot nature of the Bengals in their current form, and the low likelihood for the Titans to generate many explosive plays considering their own struggles in that metric, meaning Chase should likely be considered most as a one-off piece, even without Burrow. That is subject to change later in the week, but that is where I currently stand after breaking this one down. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Raiders at the Chargers kick off Sunday, October 1st at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 48.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Raiders have one of the most concentrated offenses you will ever see in the modern NFL. The Chargers have played three high-scoring games that went down to the wire, narrowly escaping in Minnesota for their first win of the season in Week 3. Justin Herbert is playing the best football of his career, but Los Angeles will now have to deal with the loss of star-wide receiver Mike Williams. Las Vegas will likely be without starting quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo, who suffered a concussion in the Raiders' Week 3 loss to the Steelers. Both of these teams rank within the top 10 teams in the NFL regarding pass rate over expectation, and the Chargers play at one of the fastest tempos in the league. How Las Vegas will try to win The Raiders' offense is wildly concentrated, with three players accounting for almost all of their production. Jacoby Myers, Devontae Adams, and Josh Jacobs combined for 54 of the Raiders' 61 opportunities, carries plus targets, in their Week 3 loss to the Steelers. That is 88.5%, the highest rate you will ever see from a group of three players in the modern NFL where teams usually mix up personnel groupings and spread out their usage. The one X-factor for this offense is the status of Jimmy Garoppolo, who suffered a concussion on Sunday Night Football that was not diagnosed until after the game. This puts his status in serious jeopardy for Sunday, and it is unclear at this point whether Brian Hoyer or rookie Aiden O'Connell will start in Jimmy G's absence. Hoyer seems like the favorite because he has been active while O'Connell has not been on for the last two weeks. However, the Raiders enter this game with a 1-2 record, and with time to prepare, they may want to see what the rookie has to offer. Assuming Jimmy G misses this game, the decision between Hoyer and O'Connell will likely drive much of the Raiders' approach. Hoyer is a savvy veteran, with a great deal of history with head coach Josh McDaniels from their time in New England. 
he would be able to step in and run the offense similarly to what Garoppolo did, albeit he is likely to be less efficient. O'Connell led the NFL in average intended air yards in the preseason and looked very good on the field. He was playing against backups, but he played very well. A young QB would likely need more focus on schemed looks and easy reads instead of being given multiple progressions. This would likely result in a heavier emphasis on the running game, with the passing game being split into two segments, play-action passing for deep shots and quick passes that have straightforward and easy reads. The Raiders play somewhat methodically, but no matter who is under the center, we should expect a heavy focus on their three core skill players, Adams, Myers, and Jacobs. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win The Chargers' offense has shown itself to be dynamic and explosive this season. After a Week 1 loss to Miami, where their running game dominated, the Chargers have thrown the ball at a very high rate the last two weeks against the Titans and the Vikings as Justin Herbert plays the best football of his career. However, a huge win in Week 3 against the Vikings did not come without a down point, with star-wide receiver Mike Williams being lost for the season to a knee injury. Luckily for the Chargers, they should be equipped to handle this loss as they drafted Quinton Johnson in the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft and have proven veteran receiver Josh Palmer, who was already playing an every-down role. Austin Eckler has been out since injuring his ankle at the end of their Week 1 loss, and with a bye week coming up in Week 5, it is highly unlikely that Eckler will play this week. Since Eckler's departure, Keenan Allen has been the offense's focal point and has not disappointed. Allen has 26 receptions on 30 targets for 326 yards and two touchdowns in the last two weeks while adding a 49-yard touchdown pass in Week 3 on a trick play. New offensive coordinator Kellen Moore has not disappointed and appears to be opening things up for Herbert on a weekly basis, with Allen the main beneficiary. Joshua Kelly has struggled on the ground the last two weeks in place of Eckler, but has dominated the backfield work and has a great matchup against a Raiders defense that ranks dead last in the NFL in yards per carry allowed. The Raiders also rank 29th in the NFL in pass defense DVOA, leading to a situation where the Chargers can pick their preferred method of attack from the outset. Given Kelly's inefficiency and how hot Herbert has been to start the year, an aggressive game plan throwing the ball is likely in this one. The Chargers will continue to involve Allen, but will likely dial up calls for Palmer and Johnston early in this game to try to spark their confidence now that they know they will rely on both players for the rest of the year. Likeliest Game Flow The Chargers have scored at least 24 points in every game this season, and the Raiders' defense is far from a stalwart, making it unlikely they end that streak in Week 4. The Raiders, on the other hand, have failed to score 20 points in a game yet this season, but get their best on-paper matchup of the year against a Chargers defense that has given up at least 24 points in every game through three weeks. Said another way, the Chargers are the team that is likely to set and control the scoring this game. The Raiders' defense isn't good enough to shut them down, and the offense has enough talent at the skilled positions to have more success this week than they have to this point in the year. Within that context, we can see how this game has a pretty high theoretical floor. It is hard to see the Chargers scoring less than 24 points, and we should expect at least 17 points from the Raiders while also noting that this game has a potentially huge ceiling. The Raiders gave up 38 points to the only good offense they've seen so far this year when they traveled to Buffalo in Week 2, 
the Chargers' inability to slow down any opponent. They even gave up 27 points to the Titans in Week 2, who have looked horrible in their other two games, also gives hope to a potential explosion from the Las Vegas side. The likeliest outcome is a Chargers victory by 4-10 to 10 points, something like 31-21 or 24-20. But the upside on this game stands out like a sore thumb when you consider the context around both teams. The Patriots at the Cowboys kick off Sunday, October 1st at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Maybe this will be the week the Patriots score more than 20 points. Hmm. Shockingly, New England leads the league in offensive tempo through three weeks as they search for an answer to move the ball consistently. Dallas looked like a team on a mission the first two weeks of the season before pulling off a classic Cowboys letdown, losing by two scores to an Arizona team whom they were favored by 11 against. The Dallas defense is built for flash, big plays, and creating havoc. They struggle against teams who are able to take care of the ball and use their aggressiveness against them. The last time these teams met, C.D. Lamb had a monster game that Bill Belichick will surely not forget. How New England will try to win. The Patriots enter Week 4 coming off their first win of the season over a reeling Jets team that after opening the year against arguably the two best teams in the NFL right now, the Eagles and Dolphins. Dallas represents a team that lies somewhere in the middle, as a team who dominated their first two weeks but was exposed in Week 3 by a well-coached and disciplined Arizona team. New England's roster isn't going to overwhelm you with their individual talent on paper but they certainly fit the mold of well-coached and disciplined that gave Dallas fits. In last week's victory over the Jets, the Patriots had a conservative game plan that featured 40 opportunities for their running backs, Ramondre Stevenson and Ezekiel Elliott. Dallas struggled with the Cardinals' running game in Week 3, and a similar approach seems in order for New England this week as they will look to make this game about ball control and field position. The strength of the Dallas defense is in their pass rush, so wearing out Micah Parsons and the rest of the Dallas front with the running game, while making the focus of the passing game in the short to intermediate area, makes a lot of sense. Dallas leads the league in man coverage rate, and is now playing without star cornerback Trayvon Diggs, which in theory makes them more susceptible on the perimeter. But it is unclear if the Patriots will want to let Mac Jones stand in the pocket with the pass rush bearing down on him. The Cowboys' defense dominated up front in the first two weeks before the rushing threat of Josh Dobbs neutralized them in Week 3. Jones is a relatively stationary quarterback who will allow Dallas to pin their ears back a bit, creating a need for quick passes, and should make the Patriots' tight ends and running backs a focal point this week, which isn't really a huge change from their approach last week. How Dallas Will Try to Win The Cowboys' offense was finally put to the test in Week 3 as they fell behind against a savvy and feisty Arizona team that has been surprisingly competitive this season. Unfortunately, they failed that test miserably on the scoreboard. While Dallas did manage over 400 yards of total offense, they were unable to efficiently turn those yards into points as they managed only one touchdown and three field goals with only three points in the last 25 minutes of the game. This, my friends, is how you lose football games. Looking ahead to this week, Dallas has a very interesting situation on their hands with the New England Patriots coming to town. 
they once again face a conservative offense that will focus on taking care of the ball. With the thing that stands out about this game being the coaching matchup between the Dallas offense and the New England defense. Cardinals head coach Jonathan Gannon was previously the Eagles' defensive coordinator, and his knowledge of the former division rival gave him a strong base from which to establish a game plan and minimize their points. The Patriots have had a similar bend-but-don't-break defensive philosophy for years, and will be okay with giving up some yardage as long as they buckle down and limit the scoring. The Cardinals blitz at the fourth lowest rate in the NFL, while the Patriots blitz at the fourth highest rate in the league. Likewise, the Cardinals rank 24th in the league in percentage of snaps in man coverage, while the Patriots rank 6th in the NFL in the same category. The Patriots' secondary is built on players, including stout rookie standout cornerback Christian Gonzalez, who thrive in man coverage, so I would not expect them to flip to a zone-heavy scheme this week. However, we know the Patriots have built their success over the years on opponent-specific game plans, and I would expect them to recognize what the Cardinals did in Week 3 and adjust their own approach in terms of blitz rate and as a mean of preventing big plays from a Dallas offense that has struggled in the red zone. Long Dallas drives that end in field goals will be a win for New England as they look to turn this into a ball control and defense type of game. In terms of the Cowboys' approach, much will depend on the health of their offensive line. Last week, they were missing three starting offensive linemen, which appeared to throw them out of rhythm a bit. As explained in the previous paragraph, the Patriots are likely going to make Dallas earn it. Tony Pollard will almost certainly be the focal point of the Dallas attack, as he is averaging 29.5 opportunities, carries plus target, per game over the last three weeks. C.D. Lamb is likely to be shadowed by Christian Gonzalez, which doesn't necessarily mean the Cowboys will ignore Lamb, but does mean his job will be a bit more difficult than usual, and the Cowboys won't be able to rely on him as a chain mover quite the same way they usually do. Last week, the Cowboys had three wide receivers and a tight end who had seven targets each. Given the man-heavy tendencies of the Patriots and the expected shadow coverage on Lamb, a similarly even distribution of targets this week is likely, and the Cowboys' offense expects to have a balanced-to-run-heavy approach in terms of play calling. Likeliest Game Flow Much of the outlook for this game will depend on the red zone efficiency for the Cowboys, as they should be able to move the ball, but their drives are likely to take a lot of time off the clock. The Dallas offense was awful in the red zone last week, due almost entirely to their play calling. Every time they got into the red zone, they called a predictable running play on first down, and often did the same on second down. The Cardinals clearly knew what was coming, and Dallas never did anything to try to exploit the selling out on the run or to get yards on that first play that would make their second and third downs more manageable. New England's red zone defense is not going to let Dallas just pound the ball down there so Dallas will have to open things up with early down passing in the red zone if they want the best chance of turning their drives into points. New England wants this game to be a ball control game and won't be actively trying to turn up the tempo to this game, so the only clear pathway to tempo picking up is Dallas's scoring efficiency. I will add that both teams playing such a high percentage of man coverage does increase the chances of some big plays, as teams will have the opportunity to isolate matchups and take shots downfield if they want. Both secondaries are solid, however, so the likelihood of those plays being successful may be relatively low, but the potential is there, and that should be noted. The most likely outcome of this game is a relatively short game, as both teams will focus on their running backs and short area passing game. 
which should keep the clock moving while limiting explosive plays and red zone scoring. It seems like a good bet that at least one of these teams will score 20 points or fewer, and there is a bit of a long shot that either team will get to 30 points, which somewhat limits the range of outcomes for this game. The Cardinals at the 49ers kick off Sunday, October 1st at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Mike Johnson These teams rank 26th and 31st in the NFL in tempo, while also ranking 24th and 31st in the league in pass rate over expectation. San Francisco has scored 30-plus points in eight of their nine regular season games since Brock Purdy stepped in for Jimmy Garoppolo last season. The 49ers' defense has been dominant once again this season, making life exceedingly difficult on their opponents. Arizona has been surprisingly competitive to start the season, as they play a controlled and conservative style on both sides of the ball that relies on their opponents making mistakes. The Cardinals have outscored their opponents by 28 points during the first three quarters of their game so far this year. How Arizona Will Try to Win The Cardinals were written off by many people, myself included, entering this season, after several off-season moves appeared to signal a focus on 2024. New coach Jonathan Gannon, however, has had other plans as he has his squad playing motivated and disciplined football. The Cardinals have been 7-point road underdogs, 6-point home underdogs, and 11-point home underdogs through the first three weeks of the season, but have managed to outscore their opponents 65-37 to prior to the fourth quarter in those outings. While they have only managed a 1-2 record, this performance during their early portions of the games highlights how well-prepared they have been and that their scheme is one that takes some time for opponents to crack. As we enter week four, it is the same story but a different week for the Cardinals. Heavy underdogs, 14 points, on the road, and everyone expecting them to be run over. This week's task, however, does seem like a different animal completely, as they face a 49ers team that is almost certainly the best offense they have faced so far this season in terms of both personnel and scheme, while also boasting one of the league's top defensive units. Said another way, the Cardinals have had some success. How San Francisco Will Try to Win Two weeks ago, I wrote up the 49ers offense, and JM noted how apt he thought my explanation of their offense was, so I'm going to drop it in here as well. Quote, For most teams, when evaluating how they play, people reference their run-pass splits and their tempo. To me, the 49ers are a different animal altogether. The way this team is built schematically and personnel-wise feels more like a basketball team than a football team. Let me explain. There are five players on a basketball court. In football, the offense has 11 players, but five of them are offensive linemen who can't touch the ball, which leaves six players to share the rock. Quarterback Brock Purdy rarely, if ever, runs the ball, and the 49ers basically ignore one of the five remaining players, whoever is in as their secondary tight end, third wide receiver, or second running back. This leaves a situation where one of four players, Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, or George Kittle, is touching the ball on basically every play for them. To illustrate my point, in the first three quarters of the 49ers' season opening win against Pittsburgh, one of those four players touched the ball on 48 of the 53 offensive plays that didn't end in a sack. 
Brock Purdy is the point guard of this basketball team, and Christian McCaffrey is going to get the most shots. But the balance here is not about run versus pass as much as it is about the fact that they have four game-breaking players you have to account for at all times. End quote. This idea holds true for the 49ers when they are fully healthy. However, when they are without one of their core players, things start to condense in a really fun way. Brandon Ayuk missed Week 3, and the result was Debo Samuel and George Kittle seeing 12 and 9 targets respectively, plus one Samuel Carey. CMC maintained his elite usage while the game was in question, and Elijah Mitchell hopped in for 11 carries and 3 targets as well, while the 49ers' other players saw a slight uptick in cumulative usage. This week, Debo Samuel's status is in question as he has mispracticed Wednesday and Thursday. If Debo misses, the trio of CMC, Kittle, and Ayuk becomes a concentrated core for San Francisco, with the other players once again likely to have a slightly bigger piece of the pie cumulatively, but none of those other players likely to see enough volume to matter for DFS purposes. If Debo plays, things are back to status quo, although I can also see the 49ers scaling back the usage they give Debo to conserve him if they feel in control of this game, which is the outcome we should expect. In any regard, the 49ers will play their game. They are not going to alter their philosophical approach for their opponent, especially one that they are so superior to on paper, and who is unlikely to force them to with explosive offense. The Cardinals have a conservative defensive scheme, but that scheme will be tested by a formidable 49ers rushing attack, and their zone coverage schemes are going to give openings to some really talented 49ers skill players this week. The Cowboys had a lot of success moving the ball against Arizona last week, but struggled to turn drives into points. San Francisco's red zone percentage is not great on the surface, ranking 20th in the league with 53.58% of their red zone drives resulting in touchdowns. However, those numbers are somewhat skewed by a couple of games where they were up by huge amounts and settled for field goal once the games were out of hand. San Francisco has scored two red zone touchdowns in the first half of every game this season, and has scored 30-plus points in eight of nine regular season games that Brock Purdy has played more than three-quarters of, dating back to last season. There's been a lot of positive vibes flowing around Arizona this season, but this is the spot where those vibes are likely to be snapped back to reality. Likeliest Game Flow Tempo will not be quick in this matchup as both teams play at a methodical per-snap pace and rank in the bottom 10 in the league in pass rate over expectation. These teams also have completion percentages of 67% San Francisco and 71% Arizona. The result is two offenses that play slow and almost every play that they run will have the clock moving. Additionally, the Cardinals' defense has been pretty successful at limiting big plays to start the year, and the Cardinals' offense is simply not that aggressive to where they would be likely to find many explosive plays, especially against a very good San Francisco defense. The result of all of this is a game that will likely not be fast-paced, and will rely on efficiency to carry the scoring. The biggest X-factor for this game is if the 49ers' defense is able to create turnovers that could help them jump out to a 10-14 point lead early in the first half, and would force Arizona to abandon ship on their formula that has been so successful for them to start the year. The likeliest game flow is that Arizona slows things down and makes it a messy game early, but San Francisco still builds a halftime lead in a low-scoring game. The 49ers' offense is dynamic and balanced enough that eventually they should start to break through, and that will likely happen earlier in the game than the fourth-quarter runs we saw from the Commanders and Giants. 
As the third quarter moves on and the 49ers' lead increases, the Cardinals will likely be pulled out of their shell. The 49ers' offense will be able to move the ball against a relatively conservative defense, but their scoring efficiency will determine how quickly they are able to separate. <laughs>